visiting with us. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad to have you. What kind of uh, what kind of a church did you grow up in? And I'm talking about when you were a kid. Maybe none at all, or or maybe it was uh, in another country. Uh, maybe it was so irregular you barely remember. What was your church experience like when you were growing up? If you would, I want you to stand and circle in groups of six. Introduce yourselves to one another quickly and tell someone, tell, the, tell your circle quickly. You don't, don't dominate, be quick. What, what was your church experience like growing up when you were a child? What was your church experience like? Again, oh, I don't remember, or none at all is a fair answer. Um, what was your church experience like as a child? Let's stand, turn toward one another. If you're at home, uh, think about your church experience and text someone. We have been drifting away from church for some time. And when I say we, I mean the American culture in general. And maybe younger generations especially, you have heard me quote statistics from a number of different surveys over the last years, and you'll probably hear it again. But for today's purposes, let's just keep one statistic in mind. Let's acknowledge this. Uh, the fastest growing religious affiliation in America today is nuns. And I don't mean the Catholic order. I mean N-O-N-E. In other words, the fastest growing religious affiliation in America by far is no religious affiliation. Plus, plus, we don't really need to go to church to connect, right? Uh, we can watch online if we want to, and frankly, we get a better sermon and better music online than we do in our local congregation. Uh, and the last, of course, the last three years have just exaggerated this drift. Some of us just got used to going to church in our pajamas for a while, and we've had a hard time putting pants back on. Some of us got a brief relief from the habit of going to church regularly or occasionally, and uh, we realized, hey, this ain't so bad, why bother? I can do it this way, it's, this works fine. Others of us have found ourselves at odds with our church mates when we've come face to face with questions of racial issues or gender identification. For example, we wonder why our lunch partner coworker or our neighbor can so easily get it when the person that we sit right next to in church uh, just misses it entirely. Sure, we may agree about the Trinity and baptism, but how do we worship alongside people with such different voter priorities? Others of us are from a completely different culture. We don't feel, we don't feel completely at home in the American church. And, and our home language church is just too far away or the kids are too bored when we go there. So we've drifted away. This morning, I know I'm preaching to the choir, kind of. You are people who are choosing to uh, connect the church, at least to some degree. But I think the question of why church is still really important for us and worth asking. First of all, because I'm going to be honest, some of us are barely connecting. And secondly, I think this is worth talking about because this will be a good reminder to us. It will help us build a, a, 
a defense for when we're talking to others who are in one of those categories that I just mentioned. So let me, uh, let me kick us off with prayer, and then we're going to go to the book of Exodus. We're still in our Exodus series. You'll see how this connects in a moment. Let me pray. Father, I pray today for soft hearts from all of us. Um, but soft hearts, Lord, that are ready to, to be active, that are ready to move. Speak to us today, and uh, as only you can, in exactly the right uh, spot that fits where each of us are and, and where we're moving next. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we're in the middle of a series of conversations we're calling uh, Rescued. Um, by the way, uh, th this is a trip through the Old Testament book of Exodus, and today we're looking at Exodus 18. It, we're looking at the whole chapter. So I'm, I, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to have it open to uh, Exodus 18 because I'm going to be dipping in and out of it. We're not going to read the whole chapter today. Um, I, yesterday was my birthday, and I'm now getting to that age where people are asking me once in a while, Ed, how long are you going to be here? And uh, I, I was telling somebody this, uh, there's a group of people talking together, and somebody mentioned that, and I said, I'm going to be here for a while, no, don't worry, and they all politely said, oh, good, and to one another, I said, shoot. Uh, anyway, one, 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 of the, one of the guys in the circle said, well, he's going to be here at least until he finishes the book of Exodus. <laughs> we, we've been in this forever, for those of you who are visiting with us. Uh, now, Exodus 18 is really the story of how Moses established a working court system or a working legal system for the Israelite people. You'll see how that plays out. So he builds a court system for the people of Israel, but the specifics of that system and, and the reasons it will established, were established, was established, will ultimately get us back to our question, why church? Now, at the beginning of chapter 18, Moses was reunited with his family, and, and it seems like he had, had left either, uh, bring up that first slide, Mike, thank you. He had either left his wife Zipporah and their two boys back with his father-in-law Jethro when he first went to Egypt, or at some point he had sent them back uh, to be with Jethro during the negotiation process with Pharaoh. We don't know. But either way, by the time of the events recorded in chapter 18, the entire company of Israelites had made the, the way miraculously across the Red Sea and safely out of Egypt, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So Jethro, along with Zipporah and the two boys, met Moses and the Israelite caravan at Mount Sinai, where they were camped. Now, it's almost certain that Jethro, Zipporah, and the boys had been keeping up with Moses and his exploits over the months of their separation. I mean, they didn't have Instagram, but uh, news traveled very effectively along trade routes in the ancient world. And verse 1 tells us that Jethro had heard, look, everything God had done for Moses and for uh, the people. In fact, way back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 19, when Zipporah first met Moses, we learned that she recognized him as an Egyptian prince. So the Midianites were at least somewhat familiar with the goings-on in Egypt and, and with Egyptian culture. And Zipporah would have been especially anxious for word about what was going on with Moses, uh, uh, you know, especially in light of what he had gone to Egypt to do. 
Still, when Moses greeted his father-in-law, according to verses 7 and 8, look at this. He went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. And it's not hard to imagine that as Moses was telling Jethro everything, he's telling him in great and very rich detail. And I think it's probably for two purposes. First of all, Moses wanted to impress his father-in-law. We all do. And secondly, more importantly, Moses wanted to give glory to God. He may have even been thinking about witnessing to his father-in-law, and I think he was. You see, many historians believe that the, the ancient Midianite people were unusual in the ancient world in that they, they were monotheists. That means they believed in one God. And Jethro was a priest in that religion. But beyond a general monotheism, we don't know that they had any clear ideas about what the one true God was really like. So Moses seems to have been interested in bringing his father-in-law fully into a relationship with God. And from this passage, it seems to have worked. If you look at verses 9 and 10, Jethro refers to the father-in-law, refers to God as Yahweh twice. And the word Lord here translates the Hebrew Yahweh. And remember, this was God's personal name that he had given Moses, the name the Israelites would use from here on out for God. Plus, Jethro praises God. In verse 10, he says, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And then after that, he engaged in a, a covenant sacrificial meal worship ceremony. Later on, uh, Jethro, and we'll get to this, Jethro is going to give Moses some advice, but he actually encourages Moses to make sure the advice is uh, God's will. So Jethro seems to become a believer, which is awesome. After their warm greeting and a day of telling tales then, Moses took up his duty as judge over the people and over their issues. And this may have been the first time that they'd had a chance to engage in this kind of activity. And we get the sense that they had quite a few issues. Now this shouldn't surprise us. I'll guarantee you that they had beef with one another. It's hard to spend a week on vacation with your family without having a conflict or two. And they had been traveling in less than ideal conditions across a desert for weeks. Plus, they probably had conflicts with one another that dated back to their time in Egypt that had never been dealt with. You know that there were interfamily squabbles and neighbor disagreements, etc., that had, had never been resolved. So, while they were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses began to take up these conflicts one by one. Well, at the end of the day, Jethro had seen enough, and he said, Moses, this won't do. Why are you doing all of this alone? And Moses explained that the people were seeking God's will, and I want you to hear Moses' explanation from verses 15 and 16. Moses says this, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Now, they had come to believe that Moses was God's spokesperson. Remember, the laws and regulations had not been presented yet. That's going to happen when uh, Moses goes up on to Mount Sinai. So Moses is, at this point, he's kind of ferreting out God's will case by case. Uh, there are no precedents. There are no standard regulations. So case by case, 
Moses was building a kind of spiritual and legal precedent. Fair enough and true. But Jethro wisely is unsatisfied with this answer. This is not okay, Moses. You're going to burn out completely and the people's needs aren't being met effectively. That's essentially what he says. In fact, down in verse 23, he actually says, all these people, and you can imagine him pointing at a DMV-sized line, all these people will go home satisfied if you do this differently. Now, I want you to listen to the system that um, Jethro lays out for him. This is fascinating. I'm, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19, and just listen to uh, Jethro's outline, the, the, the system he lays out for Moses. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Fair enough. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Yes. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. So, Jethro offers a vision for a distributed workload, right? With varying responsibilities delegated to varying levels of people who can be trusted to varying degrees, people who would not be vulnerable to bribes, and people who fear God. And one of the things really interesting about this is, uh, it, the, about this whole system, uh, especially when we remember this, is, this was offered in 1300 B.C., it's not based on inheritance or blood relationships at all. The system would be based on merit and character, and that's pretty awesome. But I want us to back up for a minute. We've heard uh, Jethro's advice. Moses will take this advice, and he will establish the first court system for God's people. I want us to back up for a minute, and I want us to recognize that Jethro's advice here and the system that he outlined is built on two really important principles that will show up in many different contexts over and over again. And these principles help us get at our why church question. The first principle is you can't do this alone. This is too heavy a load, Moses. You can't do this alone. There are others who are capable. They need to step up and you need to allow them. Do you recognize this principle? We, we hear this principle articulated on the second page of the Bible. God looked at Adam and said, wow, he can't do this alone. Later in the story of the Israelite company, later on in the story, they were about to enter into the promised land. So this is after a generation they've been wandering in the desert. And two of the 12 tribes expressed an interest in settling on the east side of the Jordan River. The land that God had promised them, the land that they were going to conquer, was on the west side of the Jordan River. Two of the tribes said, this is fine. They wanted to settle in that land. In other words, they would, they would uh, then not settle in the promised land. They would occupy the territory that had already been conquered and, by the way, had been much easier to conquer than the promised land would be. 
So Moses said, that's fine, but you must send all of your fighting men over into the land of the west of the Jordan with us. God told us to conquer that land. And it's, it's all for one and one for all with us. And, and if you're willing, we don't do this alone. We, we do this together. And, and if you're willing to do that, once that land has been conquered, then this land is yours. That story is told in Numbers 23. Same principle. We don't do this alone. In Moses' case in Exodus 18, this principle meant that he should not act as a judge all by himself. Don't do it alone. In Numbers 32, it was about warfare. Don't do it alone. In Genesis 2, for Adam, it was life itself. Don't do it alone. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, this is in the New Testament. I don't have this on the screen, but listen to this. The author says this in Hebrews 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. All right. This is a call to holy living, and that seems like the most profoundly individual task. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, all of you must see that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart because we can't do this alone. And this principle drives us back to why church. And the answer in part is, we can't do this alone. The second principle, which serves as the foundation for the new Israelite justice system, was development requires infrastructure. Development requires infrastructure. This is true of every venture in life. Development requires some kind of organization, some kind of infrastructure, a town, a novel, a marriage, your spiritual life. Development in any area requires infrastructure. In Exodus 18, Jethro advised Moses to identify the right people with the right character and delegate to them the right responsibilities in a layered organization. And by doing that, Moses would protect himself from burnout and he would release many others into what they were designed for and the people's needs would be far more effectively met. This is a win-win-win if they built the right infrastructure because development requires infrastructure. Years ago, before Diane and I moved to Northern Virginia to, to start Gateway, I pastored a church in Boston. And uh, early in my ministry there, I got a call from three college students in Boston who were new in the area, and they went to Berkeley Music School. For those of you who aren't familiar, Berkeley Music School is a very good music school in Boston, but it sort of measures on people who want to grow up and be pop or rock or jazz stars. So this, the, the college is full of people, you know, who have orange hair and are multi-pierced and want to grow up to be a prince. Uh, so three guys uh, called me, and uh, two of them were brand new Christians. They just looked our church up in the yellow pages. Uh, we're, just, we're over here at Berkeley Music School. We'd, we'd, uh, could you come over and lead us in a Bible study? Sure. So I go over to Mer Berkeley. I meet these three kids, and they were awesome. And uh, we met together for several years. Uh, it turned out to be one of the most exciting parts of our years in Boston. 
And this was a very, uh, it's just, you know, these kids were too stupid to know better. So they were constantly bringing friends to the Bible study, literally, more than once. They would bring someone to the Bible study and, uh, Ed, this is Jamal. We were trying to tell him about Jesus. We couldn't answer all his questions. We told him you could. Go ahead. Uh, so little by little, the Bible study started growing, and these kids would take the subway and go over to our church, which was kind of a very different part of town. It was a hassle for them. So uh, the first year of this Bible study, again, it, it rocked. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and then these kids would show up uh, every Sunday, uh, a row full of kids, orange hair and multi-pierced. And uh, they go away for the summer. They come back for the next semester. And our, at our first meeting, you know, the, the Bible study didn't, this group didn't really have a leader, but they did. The informal leader was a guy we'll call Mike. And uh, so we get together, you know, the group's even bigger now. They've invited more friends. We sit down for the Bible study, and I'm about to start. And uh, Mike says, wait, uh, wait a minute, Ed. Um, uh, with something we want to talk to you about, something we want to talk to you about. I said, okay. And Mike said, you know, we thought about it, and we have, we have decided that we don't believe in organized religion. So we're going to stop coming to church. Hope that's okay with you, but this is great. We would like to keep doing this. And, you know, Mike, Mike was a pretty bold guy. I think the rest of the group was cowering. What's Ed going to do? Uh, but Mike was like, that's how we feel, buddy. So I said, okay. Uh, and then over the next probably 15 minutes, I felt like it was just one of those moments that you know, there were a lot of ways that I could have responded, and some of them aren't good. But... Uh, I just felt like it was a Holy Spirit moment. I left that night, and on my way home, I was like, wow, that, what I said, that was really good. That was <laughs> clearly not me. I mean, seriously, it, 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 was, it was awesome. So I, I, I began asking them why, tell me more, and that was the whole organized religion thing. We're just not into that, okay? Um, so after a while, I said, all right, but you like this. Yeah, we'd like to keep meeting like this. Awesome. So, uh, we got a lot of people here tonight. Yeah, this is cool, isn't it? Super cool. Do you want to keep inviting your friends? Uh, well, yeah, we'd like to. Terrific. You know what? Pretty soon, we're going to run out of room. We're going to have to find somewhere to meet. Uh, wonder where we can meet. Well, the, the campus lounge, somebody else. No, they won't let us meet there. Well, there's a, there's a place in the bottom of my apartment building, but they'll charge us a little something if we do it. But it's a great room. Everybody, oh, that's cool. Awesome. Cool. We could meet there. We could start in a couple weeks, and you can invite as many people as you want. They're going to charge us something, so we ought to just start collecting a little something here. <laughs> if, if we start collecting something, somebody's going to have to keep up with that. Some, you, we need one of you guys to open a bank account, and uh, somebody monitor that. And uh, you guys, Tara, and uh, you guys, y'all just had a baby. Somebody's going to have to take care of that kid. So we need another room to take care of the kid. And 10 minutes later, after I spun this whole thing up, I said, and I, I start talking faster and faster. And then we're going to need, and then we'll need, and then I look at him and I say, guess what we got? A church. We got organized religion. Because development requires infrastructure. Both of these principles speak to the question of why church, don't they? Both of these principles suggest that you and I need to decide what is the right next step for us to take toward deeper investment with God's people. I don't think that's an overstatement, so I'm going to say that again. 
Both of these principles suggest that you and I need to decide what is the right next step for us to take toward deeper investment with God's people. We can't do this alone. And by this, I mean anything. We were made for community. And anything worth doing requires infrastructure and organization. This past week, uh, Diane and I watched, uh, one or two of you may have seen this, but there's a documentary on FX called The Secrets of Hillsong. If you're familiar with Hillsong, Hillsong is uh, one of the largest churches in the world, uh, was until recently, and they, they have become a uh, music-making machine. We sing a lot of their songs here on Hillsong, learned uh, uh, here on Sunday morning at Gateway from Hillsong. Uh, they've got a variety of artists, you know, they tour the world, they, they produce huge amounts of CDs. You listen to their music if you listen to Christian radio and uh, learn during this documentary that out of that, you know, that has become an industry for them. They, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars uh, tax-free because they're a church. Uh, as the, the, the web around uh, Hillsong has gotten more complicated and has begun to unravel really within the last year, which is part of the reason for this documentary. Uh, some of that has come under suspicion and, and they're now being charged with things. It, the church began in Australia, it's now worldwide. But they're being charged with things in the Australian courts and it, unfortunately, it seems like some of the things that they're being charged with are true. Um, so this documentary, uh, the Secrets of Hillsong. The first, it's a four-part uh, series. And the first uh, part is about uh, the, the launch of uh, Hillsong New York in New York City. And uh, over the course of just like two or three years, it blew up in a good way. And they had thousands of people coming to Hillsong in New York. They show scenes of, they, they, would, they set up church on Sundays in a nightclub, what had been a nightclub all week long. So, you know, they have to get in, mop the floor, get all the beer up, and set chairs up for service. And they have, they have uh, lines of hundreds of people waiting to get in, kind of like us here at Gateway at 9 o'clock. Uh, and um, uh, seriously, there are hundreds lined up on, on the street. And of course, you know, New York loves buzz, so just the line itself creates a larger line. And they were packing, packing in thousands of people weekly uh, in, in this service. The pastor, you may have heard of this guy, even though you don't know that you have, a guy named Carl. He was um, the, I had a crush on him by the time the documentary was over. He, he was the, the best looking hippest pastor I've ever seen. Incredibly well dressed. And I don't mean uh, tux and, and uh, top hat. I mean, you know, uh, appropriately ripped jeans, $5,000 leather jacket, uh, $2,000 tennis shoes, and uh, I mean, this guy was hip. And he was, uh, huge uh, magazine articles about him, you may have seen him on the Today Show. He was the, the pastor to the stars. He's the guy that baptized Justin Bieber and several others. The Kardashians went to his church, etc. Um, well, uh, Carl also had a, a famous fall uh, and kind of unraveled, 
I think Hillsong New York is still there, but it, it unraveled quite a bit um, when, when Carl had uh, a moral failure and left. The, the documentary, four-part series about Hillsong, first part, again, was about the church in New York. Interestingly, last week, um, maybe at the end of the week where we had seen the last of the documentary, or maybe it was a week after the documentary, I stumbled onto an article written in a, a magazine called Christianity Today, which is a great magazine. It was written by a girl named Kara Caravaglio. Sorry, Kara, if I've mispronounced your name. Um, she was a young woman who, during this period in the early 2000s, or early 2010s, because this is very recent. Uh, Carl's um, inappropriate fall was 2019, I think, 2018, 2019. Kara uh, was living in New York City, and she attended Hillsong New York. And at the same time, for months, she also attended Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Now, Redeemer Presbyterian Church is a church pastored by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, I think, is one of the heroes of Christian faith in the early 21st century. You have heard me quote him several times here on Sunday morning. He's written many articles. Uh, he's written many books. Uh, he's got a huge YouTube presence. Uh, two weeks ago, um, Tim passed away from cancer. Interestingly, he died of cancer the same day that the fourth episode of The Secrets of Hillsong dropped on FX. And I think this is what stirred this author's heart, Kara's heart. So she wrote this article, this opinion piece for Christianity Today, and she made the observation, you know, these two churches, both about the same size, one of them got to that size over 35 years. One of them got to that size over two years. And I went to both churches for months. Listen to this. She said, I went to one that formed me. I went to another that entertained me. But what I really want you to hear are... Uh, one of Kara's conclusions. So at the end of her, this article, she says this. Regardless of their similarities or differences, I was not, so she's going to step on her own toes and ours. I was not looking to become a family member of either church or a caring sister to either pastor, joining in the work of the saints in partnership with the gospel. I was consuming them, looking to check a box on Sunday mornings at the most entertaining or attractive one-hour experience I could find." End quote. But we are not consumers. We are God's people. We are His legal system. We are His army. We are His presence on the earth. That requires organization, and we can't do it alone. Kara Caravaglio ended her article like this. Quote, ultimately, I ended my time in New York at a small church plant where I served as a member of that community, joining in the work of the saints. Look, I'm not trying to suggest that this church is uh, your, the only commitment that matters. Of course it's not. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it, 
your family, if you have one, yourself. You have a commitment to yourself to flourish, to build an environment around yourself that will enable you to. Your work is a huge commitment for most of you. Other commitments, a team commitment, commitment to our country. But I am suggesting that all of those commitments are enhanced by a deeper commitment to God's people. So what is the right next step for you to take toward deeper investment in church? What is the right next step for you to take toward deeper investment in church? That's not a rhetorical question. That's an actual question for each of us. Is it find the right church? Maybe you're visiting Gateway, but this doesn't feel like home. So find the church that God is calling you to and invest. Or maybe it's sign up for one of our summer classes. Go to mygateway.life, take a look. Maybe it's connect to a small group next fall. Maybe it's connect to a small group next fall. Maybe it's give more money to God's cause through this church or through the church that you're a part of. Maybe it's volunteer somewhere here at Gateway, and we have huge needs right now. We're beginning, as you can tell, we're coming out of COVID, uh, and our attendance is ticking up, thank you. But our volunteerism is not. Maybe it's invite someone that you've recently met to dinner to connect more deeply. Whatever the right next step is, find it and take it. Development, including spiritual development, requires infrastructure. And we can't do it alone. And those principles answer the question, why church? And they, I believe, compel us to act. Let me pray. Lord, we have heard you. I pray that you would strengthen our limbs so that we might obey. For each of us, Train our hearts and minds on the right, the right next step for us. Not a step out of guilt. Not what should I do. What is the right next step for each of us, Lord? Train our hearts and our minds on that. It will involve sacrifice, but we know ultimately the benefit outweighs the investment. We hear you. We can't do this alone. We hear you that development, growth, change requires infrastructure and organization. Help us obey. In Jesus' name, amen.